Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints Podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Hi, my name is Laura Lynn Hansen. I am the Relief Society president um, in the Cape Girardeau, Missouri area. And I love Leading Saints because there has been several really great episodes on ministering that has helped me in my ministering interviews to minister to the one and really connect with the sisters that I work with. And it's helped me a lot with training my counselors as well. Hello, this is Kurt Frankum with the Leading Saints podcast. Welcome back to another episode or welcome to your first episode. If you're new to Leading Saints, you should know that we are a nonprofit 501c3 organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation. And a big part of that content creation is this very podcast. So make sure you subscribe, leave a review, go to our website at leadingsaints.org and see thousands of articles there and so many more resources. Dive in. It's good stuff. Now, in this episode, we talk with Julie Clough, who runs a business called Building a Life After Loss. And she's actually a a life coach, you could say, but more specifically, coaching those individuals who have suffered the loss of a loved one, specifically children. Julie has her own tragic story of losing two of her children in a car accident. And uh, she tells us a little bit about that story. And from that, she has started this, found this purpose and mission in life of helping others uh, through this grieving process when they suffer a tragic loss. And so I wanted to get Julie on the podcast and just ask her questions specifically in the context of how can we minister and lead individuals who've lost a child? What do we do? What do we say? Ah, Man, so heavy. But I know there's probably leaders out there who are in the midst of of this situation, or maybe this is far into the future. Leaders have come back to this episode and just want to do a quick listen to make sure that as they go over to that individual's home, that they approach it in the best best mindset as possible. And so hopefully this helps you, but Julie gives some great advice and tips to really minister to individuals who suffer the loss of a child. And I think you will definitely appreciate it. So here's my interview with Julie Clough. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down for the powers of the internet with Julie Clough. How are you, Julie? I'm doing great. It's good to be here with you. Awesome. So tell me, uh, just give us some background. You have sort of a, there's a lot of different coaches and life coaches and, you know, individuals that are striving to help other people. And you sort of have an interesting approach to it, but maybe give yourself, give background on yourself and and what you do and and put yourself in the context. Sure. I'd be happy to. So... You know, in my life, everybody has their unique experiences. And I was led to become a coach, but in a very specific way. 
And that was from my experiences with loss. I had a brother who died by suicide. I went through a divorce from my first husband with three small children. And then in on Mother's Day in 2007, I lost my two youngest children in a car accident. It was a rollover accident. And I was the driver of the car. And that gave me a whole new level of understanding of grief and the pain of loss. And I felt compelled once I felt like I was in a place of healing and I was in a good place. I felt compelled. It was a calling, if you will, to share a message that would help others who are experienced loss and grief. And that led me to the certification that I have as a grief coach. Wow. Well, it's so heartbreaking to hear about your loss and you know, just it's almost cliche to say I can't even imagine what that would be like. And during that experience, I mean, I, I would imagine you were you were injured in in a rollover accident. Is this something that you found out about at the hospital, or how did that happen? Yeah, it was it was a horrific accident. We were traveling across the country on interstate, and I was like I said, driving. I had my three youngest children with me, who were twelve, ten, and eight. Carrie was 10, David was eight. And when the car rolled, they were thrown from the vehicle. And Mm. we had emergency vehicles show up and we had two ambulances show up, Carrie and David, who were thrown from the vehicle. So I didn't see them. So, so I'm sitting in the car with my son. He and my oldest son, who was 12, that was with me and he was injured. I was injured. We're taken by one ambulance to one hospital. Carrie and David were taken to a totally different hospital. So I actually laid in the hospital for, I don't even know how much time went by asking questions about how they were doing, if they were okay. Mm -hmm. And obviously, it was the whole experience was, I can't even express how devastating it was, how awful it was. When the car landed, I knew, like when we came to a standstill, I knew that our lives were changed forever. Like I knew in that instant that our life was changed forever. And I, I didn't know what that looked like at that point. And I, I really, I started to call out, you know, I killed my kids. I killed my kids because I couldn't find Carrie and David in the car. And then I realized they were yards away from us, you know, on the sidelines of the inter- interstate. And I had no idea what their injuries were, if they were going to survive, any of that. So I laid on a striker board in the hospital. It turned out my injury, my personal injuries were pretty minor, but but they didn't make it. And it was it was a major turning point in my life and in the life of my family. Yeah. And did, was there a like a social worker of some type at the hospital that uh, communicated that tragic information to you? When I kept asking and I would ask the nurses as they would go past me, you know, what about carrying David? What about carrying David? And, and how are they? And, you know, and I, I, if I can just kind of put you in that place, like, I mean, I was between just devastation and crying to actually feeling the peace of the savior coming to me during that period of time and just really feeling this place of peace. And, and as I would ask people, you know, how are Carrie and David? I would get answers like, we're, we're still working on figuring that out. We're still, we're still looking into it. What I didn't realize is I was far away from home. We lived in Houston, Texas at the time and the accident happened in Mississippi and it happened to be about an hour and a half from where my aunt and uncle lived. And I, when what they were doing was they were waiting for my aunt and uncle to get there. 
to be there with me. So as soon as they arrived, they put me on the phone with my husband, who was in the airport in Houston trying to get to where we were. And they put him on the phone and he's the one that told me that Karen David didn't make it. And then wow. right after that was when I found out that our son James was going into surgery. He, he needed emergency surgery on his leg and that was injured in the accident. Wow. So heartbreaking. And uh, how's James doing at, at this point in, in his life? James is great. He's married with two adorable children, <laughs> which we just love. And, and he's, he's doing well. You know, we both have had things that we've had to overcome because of this accident. Um, we both have experienced PTSD at some level or another from being in the rollover accident. And I'm just grateful, super, super grateful to understand you know, that our, our savior's role in our healing process. And while that's not overnight and it doesn't happen instantly, that healing is available. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question. Maybe <laughs> I'm looking for a shorter answer to a very long process, but you know, after you, you know, sort of recoup and uh, get out of the hospital and try and get, you know, you get through funerals and things, how do you begin to grapple with life or get a hang of life again? And, and, how would you describe that process to to then get to a point where you think, well, you know, I'm going to help other people go through that process as a coach, just like I've I went through? Well, you're right. It's a very long answer. <laughs> and I'll do my best to give the short answer. It's one of the reasons I wrote my book, Miracles in the Darkness, is because it is a long process. It's not an overnight situation. It was it's hard to describe how painful and devastating and hard it is. It is impossible to describe being in that place, in that crushing, crushing, painful place. It's unless you've been there, you know, so I appreciate what you said earlier about, I can't imagine because honestly, I couldn't imagine either before it happened to me. And even since it's happened, it's unimaginable to me how I survived it. It really is soul crushing, and and it's a it's it is a long process. And I think for me, I had some remarkable things happen. I had some really really hard things happen. I had some really really dark places in that journey, and I had some remarkable miracles that happened. And I was at the three year mark. I was in a really bad place. I had been called to be young women's president of my of the girls in my ward, the young women that were in our group were my daughter's friends. My daughter was 10 when she died, but by this time, these girls were beehives oh, and wow, yeah. extremely painful experience for me, but it led to healing. And in that discomfort, in that pain that I felt in that calling, in that experience, I received a blessing that really there's no other way to describe it except for that I felt the weight and the heaviness and the darkness lift. And and that didn't happen in the first month. That didn't happen. Even though we asked for that all along the way, it didn't happen in the first month. It didn't happen in the sixth month. It didn't happen in the first year. It happened when the timing was right for me to appreciate what the Savior had done for me. And I think it took me a while to really understand and and when I, when I started to 
When I started to understand that my role was then to bring hope to others and to share my story, because that wasn't my natural thing. Like I didn't share my story early on. Wasn't I didn't immediately go to the internet and start, you know, sharing this is awful. This that was not my go-to. It wasn't my was not my mo. (laughs) I was pretty quiet about what you know the suffering and the the difficulty that I was going through. Although it's impossible to be that quiet when you're that when you're hurting that bad. But it took me a long time to understand why my healing came the way it did, because everybody's doesn't. Everybody's doesn't come in that that moment where you can feel the difference from that morning to that evening. It, it's it's just not always the way it's done. And I and and there was more healing to do after that, but it was a, a huge turning point for me. And and it in a way, in a way I felt guilty about having such a remarkable, miraculous experience because I felt like I almost felt like I couldn't share my story at, at some point because I couldn't share that I had this miraculous awakening because then everyone would be looking for this miraculous awakening and, and thinking, Oh, well, you're just special or you're just, you know, you just had this special experience. And so therefore, yeah, you get healing, but nobody else does. But in reality, what I learned while I was writing my book was that I was given that experience so that I could testify of healing so that there would be no in my mind where that healing came from. And while I, I used all the resources that were available to me, therapy to get over my PTSD, my, my bishops and my other leaders to, to help and sustain me through it, a physical activity with my neighbor. I mean, all the resources that were available to me, I took advantage of, but ultimate healing comes from our Savior. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, about this term of, of healing. I think maybe it's natural for us to conflate the idea of grieving with healing. You know, you typically hear about the five steps of of uh, grieving or whatever, and and we often think by the time you get to the end of the grieving that the healing is done as well. But and, and maybe that is true. But how, how would you help us better understand the concept of grieving versus healing? So grief is. The way I understand grief now is grief is the grief is the path to healing. Like mm. we see grief as the problem, but really grief is the is part of the solution. So let me give you a let me give you an example. Kurt, if you went out and you were jogging and you broke your ankle, okay? Mm-hmm. When we think of physical healing, like that's easy for us to imagine. So, right. but when, when we break our ankle, what happens? We feel a lot of pain. Yeah. We feel pain. And there's a good reason we feel pain. Because if you tripped and you broke your ankle and you didn't feel pain, you would keep running. And you right. would injure yourself further. So, the pain of a physical injury is very similar to the pain of grief. Grief is, is that pain that we experience that says, that we have experienced a, an emotional injury and we need to take care of it. Hmm. And when, when we uh, have a physical injury and we feel pain, then what do we do? Like you wouldn't get up from breaking your ankle on your run and keep running. But a lot of times right. we hear, we hear, you know, just, just ignore the pain of grief and just keep going. Just, you know, mm-hmm. we, we hear, 
busy. And, and that's equivalent to say, keep running. And it doesn't work. Hmm. I mean, I'm reminded of Elder Uchtdorf's talk. I don't remember which talk it is, but where he talked about when we experience turbulence, like the, the, uh, the pilots, a lot of times young pilots think, Oh, we need to go a little faster. He says, when you, when you experience turbulence, you need to slow down. So when you experience pain, you need to slow down. Like you need to simplify mm-hmm. life, slow down and take care of the pain. So again, if you break our ankle, we slow down, we get the help we need. We get the support we need and we allow ourselves to heal. You know, we do the things, the protocols that allow us to heal. And it's, yeah. it's in grief. Yeah. And sometimes we can get discouraged as if we're the sort of a third party, you know, that uh, we're trying to minister to somebody who's, who's grieving and, and trying to heal. And we sometimes feel like, okay, it's been long enough. Like you need to move forward and, and ignore the healing or ignore the, the wound that you have or the brokenness. And then hopefully it'll go away. But sometimes it's that the pace of it that we have to be patient with. Absolutely. And I think that's the hardest part is because the emotional injury is so much more intimate for the person that's experiencing it than the people that are outside of them. And emotional pain is painful for the people around. Yeah. And the experience. I mean, like we... We want, like, it's part of our being to want everybody to be okay. And we just want that. We want everybody to be okay. And so it's really, really hard. It's really hard to see people in pain and to trust the process and to trust Heavenly Father and His timing. And it's, it's just really difficult. And I mean, I experienced that myself after two, you know, a couple of years of being in really deep pain and having, and I will say, I didn't have a ton of people saying to me, okay, it's just time to get over it, which I think a lot of people experience that. I didn't have a ton of that, but I felt it. Like I, hmm. I felt it from people. It's like, are we still talking about that? Or, <laughs> you know, why, hmm. why is this still, I don't know. But, and I, and I do think that I, this is the wrong word to use, but there was an advantage in the fact that, that what happened was so tragic, you know, to lose two children and to, you know, eight and 10 years old who had friends and, you know, other families that were impacted by it. And it was just such a devastating event that I think people weren't as likely to do that, you know, say, why aren't you over it? Because they were like, I don't know if I can get over it. But there was that sense of, okay, it's time. It's time. I did feel that. And I felt that from my leaders is who I felt it from. Yeah. And so, I mean, is there an appropriate time to go there that to, is is it healthy for, to encourage someone to to move on and and get over it to some extent so that they can find some normalcy and happiness? I mean, can you sometimes get trapped in the grief and healing too much? You really can. And one of the challenges, especially with parents who've lost children, one of the challenges is if you, if you go online or you, cause a lot of people are going online for support. They, yeah. they find a Facebook group. Facebook wasn't really a thing when it, I think I joined Facebook the year after the accident. You know, it wasn't a prevalent thing like it is now. We think about, Oh, I'm, I want to be a pilot. I'm going to join a Facebook pilot group or I want to, 
learn how to be a coach or whatever, right? You know, a podcaster. (laughs) I'm going to go on, join a Facebook group. And and we do the same thing. Our society does the same thing with grief as as we go to Facebook for, for support a lot of times to find like people, people who help us to feel like we're not alone in our circumstances. But a lot of times what happens in the synergy of those groups is that its pain is just kind of passed around. And, and it is a very, very real thing that we can get stuck in our pain. One of the, the best, you know, I just reread it recently. It was Elder Scott's talk. I don't remember the year, but it was called To Be Healed. And he kind of refers to that. He refers to the fact that it is, it's crucial that we be an active participant in our own healing. And, and I, when with grief, grief is this strange thing that most of us aren't, most people aren't well educated on. I equate it to being thrown into the middle of a lake and you've never learned how to swim. You know, you're just drowning. You have no skills. You have no tools. You have no understanding of it. You don't know what's normal, what's not, how to move through it. You know, are there steps? Are there things I'm supposed to do? There's, it's a very, very, nebulous experience in a lot of ways. It's very, I don't it's very confusing. And so when I say, you know, when I'm talking about Elder Scott's talk about effort, a lot of times when we hear effort, we're like, what does that look like? I mean, what kind of effort do I need to put in, in healing and in, in healing grief specifically? And, and I think that's where it's hard is if, you broke your ankle, I would say, okay, Kurt, you need to go to this doctor and get it casted and you need to do, and he's going to give you a protocol and you do this, this, and this. And that's kind of what I've tried to do with grief is really help people to understand grief at a, at a better level so that they, first of all, don't pile on additional emotions on top of that because we, we grieve and then we pile on shame and guilt about our grief because we don't know what to do. And there really are steps that will help us to heal. But I loved Elder Scott's talk about putting in the effort and not relying wholly on our leaders to make it all right. So Mm -hmm. to your question, as a leader, the challenge is to honor their grief path and to honor the pain that they're experiencing. We can't talk somebody out of pain. And I, I think as a leader, that's what's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's really yeah. hard. That's awesome. That's uh, fascinating to, to contemplate because sometimes we think, well, they've sort of created this additional pain and this pain doesn't have to be there. So maybe if I tell them to go past it, they'll let go of the pain. But, and I would imagine as long as these individuals, I mean, have resources and help. And I mean, it's not, I would hope that a leader doesn't feel like they need to be responsible for that pain. And somehow it's up to me to tell them to move past it. That's not necessarily the, a leader's role or a loved one's role, but just mainly to be there and validate it, regardless of you know how much it's real or not, right? Well, and I love that. I think that's so smart. Is is like you said, we're not responsible for somebody else's healing. Yeah, and yet at the same time, we can be there to support. And support looks like support looks like not only accepting that they're, you know, if if someone says to you, I'm in pain, and we say, oh, well, you wouldn't be if you did such and such. 
I mean, it's mm-hmm. if you go and you you read what Brene Brown has said about sympathy versus empathy, that's the the quintessential example of giving sympathy, which creates more pain versus empathy, which is that's got to be so hard. You know, yeah. it's being human. It's like putting ourselves in the place of the other person and going, I don't know how I would do it either, but also holding on to that hope and that faith of healing. And I think that's where we, we struggle. But, but that support looks like not only validating the pain and how painful the situation is, but it's also offering support for what they need. So really asking the person, instead of telling the person what they need, asking them, yeah. asking them, what would help you right now? How can we support you in your healing process? Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and it sort of asked you to, in preparation for this to maybe from you know, reflecting on your own personal experience and also the many individuals that you coach through grieving and loss. What are some perspectives or thoughts or principles that we consider as from the leadership standpoint that maybe will help us be better prepared to lead in in these circumstances? And so, and we've sort of touched on some of these, but let's go through and make sure we're not missing any details. The first one being show up and answer their questions. Maybe expand on that. Yes, I will. Because that is the, that is, so as leaders, we all have our own personalities. We all have our own past experiences. And there's those of us who have been in difficult situations are more comfortable with dif- difficult situations. And there's those of us that are more fearful of difficult situations. And so showing up may be super easy for one person. And that's great. But there's those of us who are called to lead that showing up is hard. It's mm. just hard. Especially and, showing up when tragedy has happened or a big loss, right? Exactly. Like just like it's it's hard. It's like, I don't know what I'm walking into. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. And so it just becomes extremely uncomfortable. And we could talk ourselves out of showing up. We can, you know, as a bishop or a Relief Society president or whatever, we can, we can talk ourselves into not showing up. We can say, oh, well, their family is visiting. And, and we have like, even as society, we have this idea that to leave the griever alone. Like that's just kind of a societal thing is this, they need space. And in reality, not showing up is the hardest part for people is that people didn't show up. And even though, yeah, so it's it's just being proactive. It's showing up and it's instead of... And one of the things I think that really creates a lot of problems for us around showing up is that we get really overwhelmed with trying to say just the right thing, which is one of the points that we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. When we get so overwhelmed with trying to say just the right thing, that's when we get shut down. We're like, oh, I can't even show up because I have no idea what I'm going to say. And just like what you said at the very beginning, like, I can't imagine. I mean, that's what we say. That's what right. we say. Like, I can't imagine. And I'm so sorry. And we're just human. And, and even though we're leaders, we don't have to have just the right words because there are no words that are going to solve the problem. Right. Right. Anything else as far as showing up and, and answering their questions? What, what type of questions would uh, are typical for someone to, to have in these circumstances? 
Well, I remember a few years ago, we had, I was in the Relief Society presidency and we had a member of our ward who experienced a, a really painful loss and the death of a child. And we, there was one of, there was a crucial leader in the, the situation that, that really needed to be there and their absence was really felt. And, mm. um, and that's where I really became, I became very aware of how important it is for leaders to show up because there's, there's, there's guidance that's wanted. There's support that's wanted. There's this, just this feeling that I'm, I think when we show up, we just, it's our presence just says, I love you and I care about you. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of what we say or do, our presence is, I love you. I care about you. Yeah. And, and really, and I, I, that's just so takes a lot of away from that burden as a leader to, you know, I, you, you sort of want to be the guy that shows up, shares the right scripture, brings hope and healing. And everybody's like not crying anymore by the time you leave. But really, that's not that wouldn't be helpful, nor would you ever have the ability to do that. But just saying, you know, what your role is, is you're just going to be present and you're not going to worry about if you're staying too long or like just, you know, you can communicate that if, if they want alone time or whatever, but you're just going to go and be there. Right. And that's, that's doable. Yeah. Yeah. It's very doable. And it, you know, I was, I was reflecting on as we were, I was, I was thinking about talking to you today, this image of the savior when he came to the land bountiful after his, his crucifixion and he was with the people and, and he was filled with compassion and he, you know, he told them, it's time for me to leave. And he was filled with compassion. And what did he say? I'll stay a little longer. I'll stay longer. And I think yeah. that's really like, that's the ultimate compassion is I'm here for you. And then there's, there's logistics of a funeral and a, a viewing and all those things that have to be worked out. And, and as leaders, we can take, we can't take the full burden from the family but we can certainly help with that burden by finding out what the funeral home needs and, and being able to answer their questions about whether or not they can have the funeral on Friday or they need to do it on Monday or, you know, when the building is available. I mean, all those things that takes someone who knows what's going on with the building, what's going on with, you know, right now we're, we're, we have restrictions across the country because of, a pandemic. And so even more important to just be there and to answer questions and really to answer spiritual questions as well as logistic, logistical questions and not to try to feed spiritual answers because they're not going to hear what they haven't asked. You know, I mean, really that, that example has been given to us. It's, you know, our, our heavenly father answers our prayers he gives us the answers that we ask. And so I think as leaders, we would be wise to do the same thing, you know, to, right. to say to a person, is there anything that you're wondering about right now that I can help with? Do you have a question? Do you have a lingering question that I can, that I might be able to hear? I might not have the answer, but I'm here to listen and hear your concerns yeah. and hear your questions. Yeah. And I love that. Just feeling that, that space of, you know, of the responder. Like if you have a question, I'm here to either answer it or, or go find you an answer. Right. 
and again, just being present there is really helpful. The next uh, point you put is over avoid overreacting to their emotions and concerns. Maybe uh, paint us that picture. What does what does that typically look like? So everybody has a different way of grieving. Everybody has a different response to grief, and and while one person you show up, they might be completely overcome with emotions where we're just watching them mourn. You know, mourning is the the physical response. It's the action of grief. And so they're crying. They may even be screaming. They may be whatever that looks like for that person. And then there might be another person who just shows up with that empty stare, with that stoic, you know, that that parent who's lost a child that's just like, they're just in shock. And I think as people watching that, that a lot of times we have judgments about the way that people are expressing their grief. And we don't mean to, but we do because we want to go, are they okay? You know, and we're, we're mm-hmm. putting up our little you know, imaginary meter and we're going, okay, wait, this person is here. They need to be here. Or this person is, you know, you can't see my hand motions if you're listening, but <laughs> imagine my yeah. meter. And, you know, one person is showing like a high, high emotions and we feel like, oh, they're like out of control. Or another person yeah. is not showing any emotions. And we're like, uh, you know, they're, they're so numb. There's something wrong. Right. And, you know, especially in those early days, it's really important that we kind of put aside our own meter and how we have seen grief and how we have expressed grief. Put that aside and just think everything is normal right now. Like anything is normal. Now, I say that, but at the same time, I want to be really, really careful that I say that if you're concerned about their well-being, if you're concerned about them harming themselves, if you're concerned about any aspect that around that, then by all means, bring in a therapist, bring in somebody that can intervene and can be that specialist that knows how to react and respond and to really assess the situation. Yeah. And know who those people are. Like you, you need to have those people in your area that you, you know, emergency situations where you feel like you can call on someone. But that is not the role of a church leader. Yeah. And this may uh, spill over to our, our next point as well. But oftentimes we can see individuals, maybe they have a very expressive emotional reaction to the, the trauma that they're going through. And we may think, wow, you know, they're, Maybe they don't understand, maybe their testimony of the eternal plan isn't as clear in their mind as it is my mind. And, you know, that's concerning as well. So it's almost like it's not even a, an emotional or a uh, mental health concern as it is like, oh no, like there's some spiritual concerns here too. And that's where I need to step in and maybe, maybe help out there. But just to step back and say, no, this is like a process. Like if they need to scream, they're going to scream and we're going to make sure they're safe and that they're, you know, they have the resources they need, but just allow them to express that, even if it's on the other scale where maybe they're just numbed, numbed out. It's almost like, why aren't you crying? Like I would be a mess right now and you're not even shedding a tear, you know? Yeah. And I love that you brought that up because I think that that can trip us up a little bit as leaders is that when we, because we do feel because of our empathy, because we care about people and because of our concern and we know the dangers of this world and we know 
the dangers of losing a testimony. And we can really feel that. Like we can feel that concern and that worry. And at the very beginning is not the time to address that. Right. You know, and I think in asking them what questions they have, that's where we get to address that. But to go in and say, hey, let me draw out the plan of salvation for you is it's just not the right time. Like they, and you know, your, you, you know, your people and, and you know, whether or not what their level of testimony is to some extent or another. But when they ask questions, that's when we get to answer those questions. You know, like when a child dies and, and children die. I mean, when I say child, I'm talking about a newborn to a 40 year old. You know, they're mm-hmm. still our child, a 50 year old, whatever, right? They're still our child. So when, you know, like if we, if we see an adult son or daughter die, a lot of times the parents will question, are they really okay? Because mm-hmm. they know that they've made mistakes. And so they may be asking, are they really okay? And then that's where we get to express God's love. God loves us so much. He's just, he's going, he's, we just don't even understand his depth of love, right? So we have an opportunity to go to feel the spirit guide us in answering questions rather than asserting information that may bring up more questions than it answers. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that leads into our next point as far as don't be overwhelmed trying to say the right thing. And we've touched on this a little bit, but what, what else are we missing as far as, because uh, there's always this pressure of the leader, you know, you gotta say something. And uh, even like, even to the moment of them opening the door, maybe you go to their home and they open the door and you're just like, ah, like you want to say sorry a million times. You want to say, I can't imagine, just like I said, right? Like, but you don't, and they almost feel too cliche because there's just nothing you can really say in that moment. So uh, what else are we missing as far as uh, you know being not avoiding being overwhelmed by what to say? Well, and and what you said right there was just so important because you said there really isn't anything that you can say, and I I think the overwhelm comes from thinking that somehow we can make it better. That that's what really gets us overwhelmed is that we think that there's the perfect thing to say. That's when we really get to that place of. There's something perfect I, I'm supposed to say. And, and, and then we're searching and searching. And the reason it's so overwhelming is because there isn't the perfect thing to say. And when we can't find it, then we're like, I've not done my job. I, I, I must not be inspired. I'm not a good leader. I, I don't know how to be a Relief Society president. I don't know how to be a bishop. You know, all the doubt comes in. But really, there is nothing that we can say that is going to change the situation. The most difficult thing is if we don't show up. That's the most difficult thing for the people. It's not that we showed up and said the wrong thing or said the right thing. It's that we showed up. That's the most important piece. And that's been shown in study after study. I mean, the most important thing is that we show up. And this idea that we can say just the right thing just puts way too much pressure on ourselves because we're not going to change the dynamic of the situation with the right words. And it's just letting go of that idea that there is just a right thing to say. And I would also say that, oh, I've been in so many situations. I can't even tell you. I, you know, I'll tell you real quickly. Uh, years ago, we went down, we flew down to uh, this little town 
to visit my husband at the time, his grandmother who was dying in the hospital. And we flew on this silly little plane that had no business being in the sky. <laughs> and, and we were tossed all over the place. And when we landed, I thought, oh my gosh, I, like, I feel lucky to be alive right now. So we get to the hospital and like one of the first things I say when I get in the hospital room and everyone's gathered around, I'm, I mean, a young, what, 22, 23 year old, I don't know. And we're gathered around in this hospital room and, and this precious woman is laying in the bed dying. And I say, I feel like I was going to die. And I, and the minute it came out of my mouth, I like regretted it. And I felt like all that shame come in about how can you talk about that when this woman is actually dying and you just had a scary experience. That's all it was. And so just know we're going to say the wrong thing and that it's okay. And if we, what happens though, is when we say the wrong thing, just like in that hospital, I said the wrong thing and then I shut up (laughs) and I didn't say another (laughs) word because I was so afraid of saying the wrong thing. If we just stay with it, you know, we're going to say the wrong thing. I, a year and a half ago, I went to a friend's husband's funeral and I walked up and I immediately said the wrong thing. Like in my mind, you know, I was like, why did I say that? These are stressful situations and we're, and it's just going to happen. We're just going to say the wrong thing. But as long as we stay with it and we stay there, we are showing that we care and that we love them and that we're willing to show up and say the wrong thing. And we're willing to be, to feel uncomfortable and we're willing to be in that awkward situation. And it does become more comfortable as we're willing to be uncomfortable. Yeah. No, I love that advice. Just this, you know, it's not necessarily about what you say right or what you say wrong, but the point is that you're staying with it, right? You don't maybe retreat from the experience or uh, the situation or make them an excuse to leave or because you feel like I'm just making it worse here because I keep saying mindless things, you know, but just to stay with it. And uh, I think in the long run, that'll go much further than saying anything right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm glad that's what you got out of that. (laughs) We're learning here, Julie. This is great. All right. Next one is uh, set up a support structure. And then that's something that, uh, you know, man, a, a bishop, a elder corn president, or at least, I mean, they can get to work and they can set up a support structure. What, what's the best way to go about that? We are uniquely qualified to do that, aren't we? Because of the structure of the church, because of the structure of our organizations, we just, we have the ability to do that. And it's, it's fantastic. And it, it can be such a support for families. I'll just share my own experience. When, when my kids died, my, you know, my ward basically set up kind of a point person because there were there were people from my neighborhood that wanted to help. There were people from, you know, I played tennis at the time. There was people from my tennis team that wanted to help. There were people from this organization and that, you know, my husband's work that wanted to help. Mm-hmm. There were people from the church that wanted to help. There were, we homeschooled. There were people from the homeschool. I mean, there were all these different people that weren't necessarily all connected. And so they really established a structure in order to, and because I was in the middle of it, you know, I can't tell you exactly what that looked like, but I know that they, they really established kind of a point person Mm -hmm. to, to coordinate. Like they had a point person for each of these groups that then coordinated with one person that coordinated meals, that coordinated service that was needed. And that was just a huge support for us. 
for them to take that that opportunity to create some order around the chaos that can be a situation like this. And, and then it's really the coordinating of the the funeral and the the meals and the the funeral home and all of those logistics that happen. But what we're really good about sometimes is identifying those physical needs and creating that structure around meals and around, you know, getting the the funeral arranged. And sometimes we don't think as much about the emotional needs and really coordinating. Do we have somebody that's going to be going in and checking on the, you know, family, somebody that's close that can, that can report and help us to ascertain in that process, ongoing emotional and physical needs, and really just there to, to support again, to support. I think that is part of the support structure that we need to look closer at is the emotional support, which really leads us into that continuing grief support because we're really good at the emergency situation. Mm, Right. You know, we're really good at like, okay, this has happened. We need to do this. You know, we go into action and we, we make assignments and we voluntold tell everyone, you know, what to do. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> or we have all these people, you know, asking for what can I do? And we, we make assignments. But sometimes it's the, the ongoing support that needs to happen that maybe is overlooked. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And because, uh, you know, if, if there's a family that needs dinner tonight in an hour, like I guarantee you any ward in the church can make that happen. Right. And, mm-hmm. But it's that ongoing where it becomes very nuanced. What does even support look like? And well, maybe they're over it. And so maybe we shouldn't even, let's just pretend that never happened and those children never existed almost. You know, it's like, let's not even go there. And maybe that's what they need, right? But it's, it's very difficult. Well, and doesn't it go back to that kind of the the quadrants that we think about important and urgent? And, yeah. then, and then as it goes on, it becomes less urgent, but it's still important. But then we mm-hmm. have new things that are urgent that maybe aren't as important that kind of take the place of those. Anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So any tips as far as the, you know, being sensitive to the ongoing impact of grief and things to be aware of or do, or how to approach that? So like we just talked about, there's the emergency aspect of a, of a situation like this. And then there's the, the ongoing impact in the emergency situation. You know, that's, like we said, that's where we say, what questions do you have and, and what can I answer? And we don't necessarily go in and draw the, the plan of salvation, right? But in the ongoing grief, that's where, that's really where they need the spiritual support. In the early days, it's like, you know, Heavenly Father has set up protections for us. Even the way that we grieve is set up as a protection for us. Even the numbness we feel is a protection for us because our emotions and our physical bodies can't really take that impact all at once. And so it kind of like, it comes on slowly and we really are very, very protected. And we, we have the sense that our loved one is there and we feel their presence and we feel that love. But as things go on, we feel that less and less. And that's where we, as leaders, and we're concerned about the spiritual impact of a situation for a person, 
that's where we lose people is we lose people in the days and the weeks that follow when they start to feel so lonely. And when people are grieving, their emotions are so impacted and they're so overflowing. It's very hard to feel the spirit. And this is different for everybody. You know, everyone's going to have their own unique experience with this. But my experience with my own situation and with talking with other people and with um, seeing this is that it's very difficult to feel the spirit. And so it's important for us to set up a way to stay connected, to, to continue to show our love and our patience and to provide that support that says, Hey, I know this is impacting you emotionally and spiritually, and I'm here to help. And I know that you love our Heavenly Father, and I know that you have a testimony of the plan of salvation, but I know right now you have questions and it's super hard. And and to just stay engaged with them so that they have a place to go with their questions. Because if we don't stay engaged, if they don't feel like there's someone that's in their corner that's willing to just listen and be there and answer their questions, where are they going to go with those questions if they don't feel the spirit? Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting dynamic. Um, cause I would imagine with, with such dramatic trauma that one person can experience, I mean, obviously there's individuals who can be very upset at God, right. And, and feel betrayed by God. And then, and it's almost like in those instances where maybe the, the, the trauma of the situation sort of gets them disconnected from those sensitive spiritual promptings, or they've just sort of detached from it because that's they're in survival mode at the moment. And so this support of individuals, people in their life sort of step in for that comfort. They think, well, I know that God's not here, but you know, Julie's here. And so at least Julie's with me. Right. And, and then later on down the line, maybe as things subside or normalcy surfaces somehow, uh, then they can be like, oh, oh, God was here the whole time, but God, was, Julie was just there for God in in that moment, right? I love the way you articulated that because exactly right. You know, when when we're having this, and this goes for all types of losses. I've seen this with a lot of different losses. Is that you know people show up in that emergency situation, but then there's not like a long term plan for supporting them, and then somehow they start feeling like because again society tells us leave them alone, which is not accurate. Mm-hmm. And so we we back off and all of a sudden they feel abandoned. And what we want to do is to eliminate as much as possible that feeling of abandonment. And this is tough because like you were saying, you know, when you're overwhelmed with grief, it's sometimes people who are grieving will kind of push people away, you know, because they're emotionally they're full. And so people, it's just like, oh, it's just one more thing. So this is tough because sometimes we'll feel them pushing away and not necessarily welcoming the support, but recognizing that we're just going to be in that place. You know, we're going to stand in the place. We're going to be there. We're going to show them in some way that we're there. And I want to, you know, issue a little caution here is that bishops don't feel like they have to be that person the Relief Society president doesn't have to feel like they're that person. It's really just establishing that there's a structure in place to continue to support them. Does gotcha. that make sense? Yeah. 
So, so you're really, really super aware of who you're putting with them for a ministering sister or ministering brother. Like you're super aware that this person is someone that needs an additional level of support and that you're communicating as a leadership with them about what that's looking like and really asking. So in my mind, I'm I'm just going to kind of walk through a scenario with you, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. In my mind, the way I see that working is, is we have, let's say it's a Relief Society president who's trying to support a sister who's grieving the loss of a, a child. And they have a ministering sister that's assigned to that person. And they're, you know, it's just being super prayerful and intentional about that assignment and choosing someone that can be sensitive to the situation and yet doesn't back down from the situation. Hmm. And so then that Relief Society president, she may be involved with the sister as well. Like you might need a layer of support, right? But so she might be directly involved with the sister, but she's also intentionally keeping up with the sister that's assigned as the, the, the minister for her because she's asking questions like, what are the current needs? What are the needs this week? How often is she, is, are you visiting? Are you, when you visit, is she receptive? You know, it's just like really being involved in the situation and doing the, the structure and the love. You know, it's the structure and the spirit. Sometimes we rely too much on one or the other and we don't do both. You know, it's head and heart. It's the structure and the, and the spirit. And those things, when, when we do that together, that's where we have so much strength. Like that's where, that's where God's love and God's plan and God's, you know, hope for our situation, it just really comes, it becomes very, very strengthened when we do that together. No, I love that. And it reminds me of a a discussion I had a few weeks ago on the podcast with Janice Spangler as far as the the dynamic between service and solidarity. And oftentimes we default to service. You know, we want to do, 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 do so much for whomever that we're serving, but we never create that space of the spirit of love of just like being present with the individual in solidarity because there's a lot of healing that's that's there. Because if you just focus on the structure and the service, at some point you run out of things to do, you know, the, the funeral's over, the yard is clean, the, the house is painted, you know, it's like at some point you run out of things to do and then you, that's when you sort of slowly fade away. But the solidarity, that experience is ever present and there's always something to be present for. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So let's, uh, the last point you put here is uh, be aware that attending church is triggering. And we sort of touched on this a little bit with just recognizing that sometimes the spirit, maybe their interaction with the spirit, their sensitivity towards the spirit is, is gone. And then normal activities like attending church or doing church stuff is, could be triggering as well. Yeah. There's so much that goes into this that, that we aren't always aware of. Church is triggering for a lot of different reasons. One is our emotions are heightened when we're in grief, when you know, we've experienced the loss of a child, our emotions are extremely heightened and spiritual things are emotional. Like they're very tied together. Mm -hmm. So 
it's very hard when you already feel extremely vulnerable to emotions and not feeling like you're in, even in control of your own emotions because you just don't know if you're going to be crying one minute or you're going to be okay. Well, then you go to church and church is this spiritual and by, de- you know, because it's spiritual, it's also emotional. Like it, it triggers the emotional and it just, it just makes you feel that much more vulnerable. And there's this feeling like, how do I show up? It's this weird thing. If I'm emo- emotional, I'm embarrassed because I'm emotional. If I'm not emotional or if I, if I don't show up sad or if I even, if I dare to laugh at something that somebody says, is somebody going to think I didn't love my child? Now, hmm. this doesn't make sense, you know, to a person that, that hasn't gone through this. It's like, of course you yeah. loved your child. You know, you're just laughing. But in the mind of a person who's grieving, like this is a real thing. Like this is a real thing. Like if I laugh, am I forgetting them? You know, and so these are all things that we have to work out through our healing. But in the moment, those are the experiences that are happening. It's this, you know, church can be very emotional. You're, we're vulnerable. We see that, you know, I, I'm trying to remember. I think it was a year, year and a half after my kids died that they asked me to play the piano for primary and I accepted and I sat behind the piano and cried for two Mm. weeks. I just couldn't do it. I could not do it. I could not be in that room with all those children that were the age of my children who died. And, and so I had to go to my, you know, I had to go to them and say, I just don't think I can do this. It's just so painful. And, you know, now I could do it all day long. It's one of my favorite things to do. (laughs) You go into primary and play the piano. But at the time, it was just so triggering. And if you think about, you know, losing a child and then sitting in church in that reverent, sacred place where we feel so strongly the bond between families and we don't have them there, it's just hard. And it's so important that they keep going to church and yet it's so hard. And that's why they just need that. Because if we back off, if we take our foot off the pedal and we don't, and we stop going to church or we start, you know, it's tricky right now because of the pandemic, you know, what does that look like? But when we take our foot off and we're, we're not, I mean, imagine the danger of this is if we're not feeling the spirit because we're emotionally overwhelmed and then we take our foot off the pedal of going to church, we really leave ourselves in a very spiritually precarious position where it's super easy to lose that testimony, which in a lot of ways as a leader doesn't make a lot of sense because we want to, because as a leader, we're thinking, of course, this is the place where we learn that families are forever. This is the place where we grow that hope. This is the place where we understand that, that they're gone, but they're not, you know, that we're going to be reunited with them. But the pain of the, the reality of it is so great that when all these little pieces come together where we, we don't feel the spirit like we did before or just the, the, the way it speaks to us is so different and we're trying to figure that out. And then we, we stop the habit, the structure of church attendance. And then before you know it, 
you know, the devil has his way and he comes in and he tells us all kinds of stories that create a disconnect from the testimony that we once had. And that could really be such a comfort to us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. And and it is because it can be, you know, from a church leader's perspective, you, you misinterpret maybe their actions at times, like, oh, they haven't been to church in a, in six weeks. Like maybe this is pushing them away and they'll never come back to church or, you know, when we, but we maybe overlooked that no, actually this experience is quite triggering for them. They just need to maybe get through some other, they get further down the path of their journey of, of grief until they can find purpose in, in coming to the church without that being overly triggering or, or participating in the relief society or service projects or whatever it is. And that'll come. It just takes time. Right. Well, and, and I would just recommend that we, that we help them to figure out how they can stay engaged at the level that they feel comfortable. So for example, instead of shaming somebody for showing up for sacrament meeting and then leaving right after, we recognize that, you know, we, we're just aware. And then we call them and go, Hey, just checking on you. Is everything okay? Is there anything that how, you know, we just, we're just there to say, Hey, I love you. I noticed that you left. Like just the noticing is in a way that's Mm -hmm. not, why did you leave? What's going on? What's wrong with you? Like, don't you know, you know, it's, it's not from the place of judgment, but it's from a place of awareness and love and compassion. Like really, that is the key. It's a place of love, compassion, and and encouraging them to continue to stay engaged at whatever level. So I I would caution us to be too too relaxed too much on you know if, if somebody's not showing up for church, we need to be aware and we need to be aware of that each week and show up with compassion instead of letting it draw out and going oh they're not showing up. Hopefully they'll come back, but we're aware and we're, we're compassionate and we're like, how can I help this situation be more comfortable for you? Or helping them recognize that it's okay if they show up two minutes after the meeting starts in order to slip into the back row. And it's okay if they leave two minutes before it ends to slip out because that's what they need to do right now. But it's just great that they were there and we just love them and we care and you know, I, I had a, an experience where I was in a meeting and I was, it was really emotional for me. And I just felt myself falling apart. And it, and I felt it's funny how we do. We always think everybody is noticing us. I don't know that people are noticing us as, as much as we think they are. Yeah. But you know, when we're vulnerable and we're falling apart and we're sobbing in church, it, like it feels like all eyes are on us. Nobody's paying attention to the speaker. Everyone's looking at you. <laughs> And I just sat in the pew while the whole chapel emptied out. And I thought, I, I've got to leave. I can't pull it together. And this dear friend came and sat next to me on the bench. And she just said, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. And in that moment, and I said, I am not. And she said, no, you are here and you're doing so good. And she just encouraged me. And I think that's really what it's all about. It's like keeping that hand in their hand and encouraging all along the way and helping them find the resources that are going to help them to heal. And I, again, I go back to the talk by Elder Scott, Elder Richard G. Scott about to be healed. So, 
so informative about the way that he instructed people on how to continue to have that effort. And showing up for church is just part of the effort. Yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Julie, this has been so helpful and insightful. And of course, you know, we'll never, <laughs> we'll never, you know, adequately address this uh, topic in a, in an hour long podcast interview, but hopefully it gives people a place to start. And my hope is that maybe, you know, something tragic does happen. A leader can maybe grab this episode, quickly listen to it, and at least have some basic resources to draw upon as they begin this journey of, of leading someone who who loses a child and goes through something, even just in general, going through something so traumatic. Anything we're missing? Any point or concept? Or do we do we hit it all the best we could this, this round? Well, I, I would just add a, maybe just a couple of quick things. One is just, okay. you know, we hear this this thing about we have two ears and one mouth, you know. I would add we have, you know, eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to feel, hands to heal, and and our, you know, one mouth and mouth to comfort and to mm-hmm. just be from that place of compassion and really focusing on compassion. And then from a structural standpoint, from an administrative standpoint, is having that emergency plan and really kind of talking about what is our emergency plan. And then when we have to implement that plan, that we really start asking ourselves what worked and what didn't so that we can continue to improve as leaders and as a council. And I think that those are the two thoughts that I have in closing. Love it. Well, I got one more question for you, but before I ask that, if people do want to get in touch with you, whether your, your resources, your book, uh, your coaching, where would you send them to learn more about you? So my website is buildalifeafterloss.com. It's a mouthful. So I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Buildalifeafterloss.com. I have a podcast by the same name. So that's a free resource for people who are looking, you know, trying to figure out grief and how to rebuild. And I, you know, like you said, I do one-on-one coaching and yeah. So I'm just, my email address is julie at buildalifeafterloss.com. Reach out if you have questions. I'm, this is what I do. This is my calling. This is my, this is my mission. Yeah. And so I appreciate awesome. the opportunity to share. Yeah. So my, my last question is related to that is you've sort of discovered your purpose and mission in, in uh, assisting other people through loss. How has that form of leadership made you a better follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, I love that question. Wow. How much time do you have? Um <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's so different when we, you know, as a leader in the church, we have manuals that say, do this, do this, do this. And then we're instructed then to to take that and to add the insight, the spirit of the Lord, the revelation that we receive. When we, as individuals, we have that same opportunity in our life to take the things that we learned as a leader in the church and to apply that to our personal life. And we don't always have a manual. We don't ever have a manual. Let's just say, you know, the scriptures are a manual of sorts, but it's like Heavenly Father says, okay, this is what you've got to do, but now you've got to gather the tools and you've got to gather the the things that are going to work and, and you got to put it all together with my help. And I think, you know, for me, that's, that's the beauty of, just living life and not separating that, uh, what we do from day to day from church. And it's like, our life is a testament to our faith in Jesus Christ. 
and how we choose to go about our day every day and how we choose to call on him in every aspect of our life. And so I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I could adequately answer that question in, in two minutes, but that's the, the thoughts that are coming to me right now. That concludes my interview with Julie Clough. I sure appreciate her sharing from her life experience, from her coaching experience, just some solid nuggets in there to hopefully help you as a leader, as a loved one, as somebody who's ministering to an individual who's gone through something so tragic, right? And uh, reflect upon this. Hopefully this is, uh, maybe this isn't something you're dealing with right now in your life, but file this away. And in the future, if you do need to come back to this episode and listen again, what a phenomenal resource. Go check out Julie's resources if you are looking for you know more in-depth resources at buildalifeafterloss.com. And I'd be curious to know, uh, obviously we didn't uh, cover this issue completely just in one uh, episode. So if there's any other angle or topic or individual or expert that we could reach out to and talk to about this concept or something related, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and let us know. And I remind you once again to text the word lead to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness, the loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away, and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.